You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I'm Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Super excited for today's guest. Tim Sykes, Sean Kelly, Riley Meek, Justin Rizvani, Cole Gordon, Brian Littlefield, Bob Mesta. What have you found from a mindset or from strategies that has helped you become successful and continue to be able to be successful every year? It's all about adapting, you know, like Mm. it's been a crazy few years, obviously, for the world. I mean, for me and for anybody who's trading just because of the huge influx of people who want to get into trading because people are home forced or otherwise they lost their job. Um, But, you know, there's many different kinds of trading and let's not forget 90% of traders lose. So it's like everyone gets their stimulus checks. They put into their Robinhood account. Nine out of 10 people lost all their money. They're putting it in some crypto. Most cryptos have crashed. I think you just have to be ready for anything and be open to anything. So if you see an opportunity, you know, for me, I saw an opportunity with teaching penny stocks because there's no like quality penny stock traders teaching. I know a lot of traders, they don't want to share their secrets publicly because that would impact their earnings. I I don't know the last time, I think the last time we talked, I would go back to a small account every year of 12,000 and try to grow it. I still do that, but now I donate a hundred percent of my trading profits to charity. I just make money from teaching. So my interests are completely aligned with my students where, again, it's nice if I make money, I want to donate more to charity, but I'm more interested in creating a video lesson. What did I do right on this trade? What did I do wrong? Let me teach students the process. So in a past life, even last time I talked to you, I would never have been like, no, I'm, I'm not donating all my trading profits to charity. Now for me, I want to donate more and I want students to understand it's not about my trading profits. It's seeing my screen, seeing what I do and learning from it. This is how I've quintupled my number of millionaire students. So I've adapted to take advantage of opportunity wherever I see it. And you really have to be open-minded. You can't be closed-minded to anything. You will be Mm. shocked at, at the life that you can create if you're willing to listen to, you know, your heart and in your gut and go with what makes you happy. Yeah, no, I think that's so important because a lot of times, especially if we're trying to, like, we're so focused on making money that we're not doing that. We're not listening to our heart. We're not listening, you know, it's all about, oh, you know, I got to trade, got to trade, got to trade. And then we start putting all that pressure, you know, on ourselves. And then that, you know, that's when we start making mistakes. I mean, I like to think of myself as actually a retired trader, even though I trade almost every day, that little mindset keeps me out of the overtrading uh, trap, right? Where it's like, mm. okay, I'm a trading teacher. Okay, I got to show my students something. But if you do that, you take subpar trades, you'll get subpar results. So for me, I'm a retired trader. I don't have to trade. I don't have to trade. We're doing this interview midday. I haven't made a trade yet today. I haven't seen anything great. And I'm only going to come out of retirement if I see a trade that's so good that I would feel guilty missing it. So I come out of retirement like Tom Brady and I got to, you know, <laughs> go back and, and trade like that's That's legit. The mindset that I use. And it's been a game changer for me because taking the pressure off for me trading every day and instead waiting for the best setups and be like, no, I don't want to do this. Like right now you caught me. I'm in Miami in my bed, but Oftentimes, like this summer, I'm going to be all in Europe. I'm going to be in Greece, Italy, France, Portugal, Spain. I'm going to be living life. 
But if there's a great play, I will come out of my self-imposed retirement, Brady style, and come back. Tell us a little bit about how you got started on your on your entrepreneurial kind of journey when you got started. Um, just me knowing a little bit and us converse, conversating and um, w- when we hung out and met several years back and stuff. It's, it's always interesting and I always like to share that with people. So, Yeah, I feel like I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit even as a kid. I truly think like it's something you're born with. Um, so yeah, I did the typical stuff as a kid, you know, selling candy, shoveling driveways when it snowed stuff like that, but really scaled it up in college when I got into e-commerce, started a company called Jersey Champs. And that's sort of how I made my first six figures was through dropshipping. And then once you have some capital, it's a lot easier to, to scale from there, as you know. And with the, with the jerseys, you, you guys were printing, like, because you guys had like some big name celebrities that were wearing your jersey and everything, right? Yeah, so I was I was a broke college kid. So one of the strategies I used was I would uh, like send the jerseys out to celebrities, just cold message them on Instagram, even cold email their managers, and try to get an address. And one out of every you know fifty or so would end up taking a photo and posting it, and that was enough to pay back for the fifty jerseys I sent out and more. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> That's cool. And then, so that, I mean, obviously you, that was a, that was a pretty cool tactic. What were some of the different ways that you've grown it? Cause I know just seeing you on social and some of the different things, I mean, I know you guys got it built to where you had a lot of people coming to you guys to figure out what you were doing and you did a lot of meetups and things like that. So what were kind of some of your insights and skills that you guys were able to do to really grow that business? Yeah. E-commerce, you got to adapt very quickly, similar to NFT market actually. So um, we caught Facebook ads right when they were popping off back in like 2017, I think, before the whole pixel update and everything. And we caught TikTok as that was coming up. So those influencers were dirt cheap. And I still think some of them are, but back then they were all super cheap and you know they didn't really know their value at the time. Right. Uh, off the top of my head, definitely that the celebrities influencers opened a lot of doors because we could leverage uh, our relationship with them to get big deals with music festivals, stuff like that. And um, I think it's good social proof that you can use for your paid ads as well. Cool. And then obviously it looks like over the last couple of years, you know, year and a half or so you guys have been in the diving into the NF, NFT space. What kind of shifted you from kind of focused on e-commerce over there? Yeah. So e-commerce, we got hit hard during COVID. Our margins went down a lot and they were already kind of slim, as you know, with with physical clothing. It's not the highest because you have so much inventory. So I just saw Gary B. I saw like a bunch of uh, like NBA Top Shot was popping up at the time. And I was like, what is this stuff? So I really dove in. It took me a few months to f- to get it because I was really skeptical at first, as I'm sure a lot of people are with NFTs. But then I just started aligning myself with the right people, like follow the top NFT accounts on Twitter, just started reading their tweets every night, um, really understood the space. And once you understand the space, it's a lot easier to, to then go launch your own project. What were some of the things I know, um, you know, as entrepreneurs, we work with mentors and, you know, you got to work with a lot of different people. Uh, it sounds like, you know, as you were learning and trying to figure out what direction you wanted to go and teaching, you know, learning as an entrepreneur, what were kind of your biggest three takeaways from that that's helped you now? And then also is, you know, put, kind of solidified your entrepreneurship path for you. Yeah, man, early on, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I knew I wanted to make money. 
And you know, that rightly so, right? It's like <laughs> <laughs> we all have that that desire, and and it's like yeah. it's hey, I, I want to make money, I want the big house, I want uh, I, I want to live the life, right? And most of us, really, what we're going for is freedom, right? It's not even money itself; it's what money can afford us to do. And and most of us want that freedom. And I thought it was sitting on the beach sipping my ties, like. Like that's the life, right? Um, but as I started to the laptop lifestyle, right? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Which, by the way, I don't, I don't really believe there's a, a true, true, true passive type of income uh, out there. I think that it's always going to take some sort of work and some sort of effort in order to f- actually see things through, or at least have the right people in place to to make that happen, right? Sure. Um, so I think that was the one of the biggest things was I, I mentioned earlier. It was like get around the people that have what you want. Right and and do what whatever yeah. it takes to get in the room. If it's if you got to pay money, if you got to serve your way in, just get get around them, and and that's going to help to open up the, the just your thinking because the small community that I grew up in, I'm sure you did too, Josh. Like people just it's the the idea that you can go do something for yourself was just not really ever. I didn't even know. I just thought I had to go to school, get a job, and you know pay off my student loan debt, work for 40, 50 years, and then die. I don't see that anywhere. I mean, everything that I've, that I've based my life on, um, you know, now that I've, I've had this understanding, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And it's like, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as retirement. It's like you work, we were called to work. And, and so like getting around people that, that have that same mentality was, was a big thing for me. But then at the, as an entrepreneur, I've, I, I mean, I've kind of bought into this philosophy of keep your head on a swivel and, and look for opportunity. Right. And most people will tell you, well, if you, you know, if you just do what you really love, follow your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. I think that's complete BS. Um, first off, if, if now you're, you're working at your passion to make money, it's becoming like something you have to do. It's not something that you want to do and you get to enjoy doing. Right. So my philosophy is, is really work, look for opportunities and no matter what the opportunity is, bring your passion with you because there's Mm. opportunities are, you know, I think I've, Who'd I hear say this? Jesse Itzer. It's like it's like a bus. You know, there's always one. There's always another one. There's always another one. There's always another one. The most most of us they'll never get on the freaking bus, and we're broke and broken, right. defeated, sitting on the bus stop waiting for God to give us a sign that oh, if I just knew when the next opportunity was, well, open up your freaking eyes. There's right before you, but it takes action for you to to actually get on the bus and get into a a, a flow or a rhythm. But don't leave your passion at home. The only way that you're going to be, you have to bring your passion with you, and that's going to be the fuel that 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 fuels that actual opportunity to to come to fruition. What were some of the things as a kid that you picked up starting your own businesses that are still relevant and that you've applied today to be successful? I think relentless focus. Um, no, doesn't exist in my vocabulary. There isn't someone that's going to kind of push me down a no path and say, Oh no, that won't work. Or no, that's not active. It's just not, not the reality. I, I don't take no for an answer um, because I only have one chance at this. So I think that's like relentless focus. I think is, I also am very disciplined. I wake up and even days that I don't want to work, I don't want to spend time on stuff. I just do. I keep doing, I keep doing cause that's the only way that you're going to move forward. No one's going to save you. No one's going to help you. You just have to do it on your own. And, if you're relentless, yeah. you'll win. What are kind of the three biggest things you see right now with the way the country's going and and why, you know, there's so many people that are starting to, I guess, wake up and to see like, hey, this is what we've been, on, you know, in you know, asleep or we've been 
being suppressed to this degree, um, you know, and, and this is where we need to go. I think that the one of the main issues is we are blocking individuals that disagree with us. So let's just think some mm. some high level numbers. If you're talking to one person, the likelihood of them disagreeing with you probably pretty low. Let's say if you're talking to ten people, is the likelihood that one person you'll disagree with probably getting a. But if you send a message to a hundred thousand people, what is the likelihood that one of those people will disagree with you? Quite high. The current environment yep. is a state where an individual can send a message to hundreds, if not millions of people at one time. And if one person disagrees with that idea, the proxy is to suppress that message and not allow that person to actually have a voice. That's very dangerous for society. It's very dangerous sure. that, that ideas cannot be explored by individuals because it suppresses our thinking as a society. And I think we should have a more open conversation about these are ideas that people have and we should be able to explore and, and that individual should have the ability to share that idea. And I'm not talking about illegal things like illegal is illegal no matter what. Illegal right. is a whole other animal. But um, what we define on these lines is what needs to kind of improve and change. And so that's why we're providing a more open and honest ability on a, on a technology perspective for individuals to share their ideas. That's awesome. Kind of, you know, as you were making that transition in the sales and then starting to learn, what were you think were some of your kind of key attributes or things why, why you either picked it up real easily or why that, um, you know, what made it, you know, why you connected really with it to be good at it? Yeah. Well, I definitely wasn't good in the beginning. I was really right. bad. The one thing I always had for me was a really strong work ethic. So I, what, what really had me going for it is that a lot of other guys on the team, uh, even if they were a lot better than me, they still had a little bit of a job mentality. And, and some of it was they were using their sales career, or their sales job as a stepping stone to the next thing, which nothing wrong mm. with that, but they were doing that or they were uh, you know, doing uh, the sales to make money, but they kind of had like a side hustle going on at the same time. What I decided to do was just go full tunnel vision and just really optimize every minute of my, around my day of becoming the best I possibly could be at sales. And sales is really hard. Like to really kind of just fully dedicate yourself to it and review a ton of your calls, all of that stuff, it's, you know, it, it does take a full bandwidth. So not only did I obviously take the maximum amount of calls I took that were generated inbound, not only did I prospect a bunch and self-set, but at the same time, I was reviewing a ton of my calls both my wins and my losses, which is really important. Just as an athlete breaks down game tape, a salesperson needs to break down their own game tape. So I was constantly reviewing and trying to get better. And I was going through tons of trainings and courses and I was hiring coaches. And so, and I invested a ton into myself. And then I'd say the final thing is as well, is that um, I, I finally kind of, this sounds so common sense now, but you know, back then I was probably like 24. And so I was kind of partying a little bit and, you know, I, sometimes I stay up late and some days I wouldn't. And when I really started to treat selling in my profession, like I was a professional athlete to where like every day I got to wake up and play the game every day. And I got to make sure my energy's right. My body's right. My health's right. My focus is right. My, I don't have brain fog that I got the right night of sleep. And I started to get, you know, eight and a half hours or nine and a half hours of sleep and started eating really well. Believe it or not, that was bar none, the biggest thing that I did, which sounds so like, duh, you know? And, and now I'm <laughs> like, well, okay, like, what do you, what do you know? But back then I was like, you know, a 24 year old kid, I was partying, I was 
you know, drinking, I was chasing girls, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. So I just wasn't doing any of that stuff. And when I really started to like take care of myself in those ways, that's when I started to be consistent. Because before that I'd have really ups and I have downs. Then mm-hmm. I started to get consistent because I had at that point, this was like probably six or seven months into my selling career, I had the talent. I just didn't have like the discipline. And then when I, when you get both of those together is when you start to do really good. And then it's just about getting, uh, you know, just, just working at it more and trying to gain every little inch you can to get better. You know, I know when I was younger, I used to listen to a bunch of podcasts and I just kind of was lost. You know, I was consuming mm. a lot of information. I was listening to the, the Lewis Howes and the Gary V's and all these guys. But I was like, what do I do? You know? And I just want to give somebody, you know, who's in that same situation as me that I was five, six, seven years ago, some advice on what to do, like practical steps. Number one, what I would do is find an industry you're passionate about. You probably already know that. Like maybe you're into real estate, maybe you're into digital marketing, maybe you're into coaching. I mean, just find the industry that you're naturally gravitating towards anyways. Maybe it's crypto nowadays, whatever it is. Find the thing that you're naturally gravitating towards, number one. Then number two, get a job working for the company who's like top dog in that industry. And honestly, just try to get in with whatever you can get in at. If you got to be the janitor, be the janitor, you know, but just try to get in and then just absolutely obliterate that position. Like just be the God's best at it. Okay. Just dominate it. You know, if you're going to be a janitor, just be the best janitor in the freaking world. Okay. And then from that, those two, really what you're doing is what Robert Greene talks about in mastery is you're sort of entering into an apprenticeship. And I, I really believe if you get in a pa- in, into a company that is an industry you're passionate about and you get around, it, it's, a, it's a new, fast-growing company, it's usually like more of a startup phase and you have some good mentors within the company, if not the founder, there's nothing that's going to accelerate your growth as much as something like that will. And you're gonna learn, you're gonna get paid to learn a tremendous amount that you basically would have had to learn through mistakes otherwise. So I do think that would help a lot for a lot of folks who are really beginning in their journey and just kind of lost on what to do. You know, what's kind of some of those challenges you guys have been hitting and how you're navigating through those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we run into all the normal business challenges of a rapidly growing company, like maintain, like keep it up with cash flow. Like if when your growth exceeds your cash flow and you have to you know, get creative, you start you start your, your CFO comes under pressure. You know what I mean? Like and we have a phenomenal CFO. Uh, in Don Miller. And, you know, it's, it's most of the classic things that you would get. And then the, the, the things that the unique things that we deal with that I deal with in particular are during this COVID situation where supply chain has become crazy. Mm. We like, everything is inflated, but when you take something like monk fruit, which is a sweetener that we've we've stood behind since day one. And when it goes from, you know, $275 a kilo to $425 a kilo, your, your cost of goods goes through the roof and you have to, you know, stick to your word and and maintain, you know, maintain your positioning because you're not going to pivot and start introducing artificial sweeteners or things like that. So we also embrace the idea of constant improvement. And one thing that was interesting with Jocko when I started with him I thought because his whole thing is discipline equals freedom and he's so mm-hmm. like, you know, like, you know, the dude has like endured like real shit. And All so right. when I talk to him about like flavoring and sweetness and what the product should taste like, I'm like, does it matter? And 
He's like, it absolutely matters. And I'm like, interesting. I thought you'd be like, I thought he was going to come from the position of like, just deal with it. You know what I mean? It's good for you. No. And, and his reasoning made all the sense in the world. And that's what's continued to push us, which was his objective is to get as many people as he calls on the path as possible. Meaning like living a healthy lifestyle, being a little bit better every day. And if we don't give them something that can truly pull them from the toxic option to the healthy option, then we're not doing our job. And that has pushed us to continue to evolve the products. And one of the things we did over the last uh, year, we spent the first half of this year, you know, going to, you know, lands of earth on options on new technology. And we found finally another sweetener that we could stand behind. And that was um, an alternative to every other option on the market that didn't exist when we started. And we were able to use that, tweak our natural flavor systems and improve the flavors of the energy drinks significantly. I mean, in my opinion, they went from like a six to, you know, a nine and a 10, depending on which flavor, you know, and flavors preference. But we really had to level it up because people knew it was going to be healthy. They knew it was going to be efficacious. But, you know, if we want to help the masses get away from the toxic options on the market, we just had to go back to the drawing board and say, like, listen, our shit's not good enough. And no, we're not going to phase them out and try and hide from the fact that we didn't do a good enough job in the beginning. We're just going to own it. And we're going to say, listen, we did everything we could at the time, but now we can do better. And we're just going to go back there and reinvent ourselves. And that's what we just did. And we're super excited about that. Some of my friends, they just have like all these ideas that, oh, wait, you know, I, I, you know, I could see there's a need in the market for this or this. I mean, I and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, that could be all good. But what, what makes somebody like an innovator? Like, what is that mindset like in their head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I talk about the, there's a difference between an inventor and, and an innovator, right? Mm, an, an inventor okay. has to create a unique way. They have, uh, the, their stuff is usually patentable, right? And that, sure. that's unique and protectable. But the fact is, is it's just a, a different way of doing something. And so part of this is that to me, what innovation is about is it's about actually helping a large group of people basically make progress in their life. And so part of this is that most people come up with the idea. And I always think of ideas are really, really cheap. Like everybody can come up with ideas. There's thousands and thousands of ideas, right? But the ones that really hit are the ones that actually land on something where people want to do something, but they can't. And so mm. part of this is to be able to figure out kind of where are those moments where people are struggling or people want to do something, but they can't. And then ultimately figuring out how to design something to fit into their lives. Right. A, a simple example of that is I worked with a company called uh, Southern New Hampshire University. I don't know if you've seen them on TV or anything like that, but but yeah. they I started talking to them back in 2010 when they had about 500 online students. And we figured out, like, how many people want to go back to college but can't? <laughs> and can we figure out a way to actually help them do that? They now have 200,000 students globally. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so you start to realize like it's, it's not focused on like, so, so what we did is we figured out what caused those 500 people to, to literally say, I'm going to pay to go back to college, but I'm never going to come to campus. We end up figuring out how they actually, why they did that, what they did it for and what they were willing to pay. And then we found other people willing to do it. And the, in the first year, we went from 500 to 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> Right? It was just that many people. So you start to realize it's a much larger market when you say, how many people want to go back to school but can't? All right, now sure. I can actually go build something. 
So th that's where it starts. And I usually, again, as an engineer and a, I'll say a technologist, I love technology, but at the same time, I I'm very prone to over-engineer everything. And as Jason <laughs> Fried says, he goes, you're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass hole. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> the one thing I think that, that if I could pass on that I think would be the, it's been so useful to me is to realize number one is there's way more unknowns than there are knowns. And that, and that you have to appreciate and humble yourself to realize like when you think you know the answer, I can almost guarantee you don't. And that you have to actually take the time to actually uh, identify the unknowns. And most of the development work is about making the unknowns known. And so like, think about it. We plan when we're the stupidest about something. And then we hold ourselves accountable to that stupidity as opposed to realizing, look, this is where I want to start. And this is the direction I want to go. And the fact is, is measure your measure, you know, uh, measure your goals by the progress you make, not by the gap you are from the goal, because progress, you, you can't even possibly imagine what's possible without like six months from now, I'll be way smarter to know what those goals should be. And so part of it is to think about what progress do you want to make? Don't set yourself just a goal to hit a goal, because at some point, nine times out of 10, you end up being myopic and for every goal you hit, there's three goals you don't hit. And ultimately, you have to trade off to get to make progress. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.